I thought I was Carrie Bradshaw when I was 25 years old. I was running around New York City. I was essentially living the dream. And to me, the dream was working 10-hour days, seven days a week, going out every single night, uh, dating all of the wrong people. I had tons of friends that barely even knew me. To me, that's what life looked like to put myself first. When in reality, I realized at 25, you think you know everything at 25, by the way, you know everything. What I realized is that that's actually what it looked like to put myself last. And what that meant for me was that, you know, by dating all of the wrong men, this is Christian Bale from American Psycho, similar types of men, uh, you know, by dating all of the wrong men, by having this lifestyle that hurt my heart and my feet, I was wearing six inch heels, I actually realized that I was putting myself last. And something to note, you know, this lifestyle wasn't always who I was. I had actually been a teacher. I had worked with children for 10 years. I was so passionate about working with children, around being around children. I, have a, I got a master's in education, curriculum and instruction. I worked in numerous classrooms. I was a camp counselor. Anything I could do to work with children, I did. And so it was a very quick transition from 10 years of working with children to 10-hour days of drinking, working, and dating all of the wrong people. And I have to say, you know, with dating all of the wrong people and looking back to that time in my life, I really didn't think I deserved to be with the right person. I didn't think that I deserved to have what I wanted. And I think a lot of women are put into these situations where we're told we're not good enough. And I was climbing up the corporate ladder and I was working in an industry of hospitality and nightlife that was primarily men. And I was about to become a partner in the organization but something felt off and something slowed me down just enough to realize that I wasn't going down the trajectory that I thought was my path. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message in interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue a passion-driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Welcome to episode 54 of the Passion Struck Podcast. And I wanted to give a shout out to you, our fans. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast and our mission of making passion go viral for millions worldwide. And I'm going to start today's episode with two quotes from a person who absolutely has passion, Oprah Winfrey. She said, passion is energy. Feel the power that comes from focusing on something that excites you. And she also said, forget about the fast lane. If you really want to fly, harness your power to your passion. Honor your calling. Everyone has one. Trust your heart and success will come to you. Such a great lead-in to our episode today with Amanda Slavin. Amanda is a Forbes 30 under 30 honoree, chairperson and co-founder Catalyst Creative, which is an award-winning community events agency specializing in audience engagement. Using the seventh level of engagement framework from her best-selling book, The Seventh Level, Amanda has advised countless startups, including HubSpot, Kitty Credit, Speakfully, Scene, My Village Official, and many more, as well as being an angel investor and venture partner at Ozone X. And in today's episode, we discuss her best-selling book, The Seventh Level, how you can apply it both to your professional life and your personal life, that pivotal moment where she found her passion and how it changed her life and career trajectory, the changes that motherhood have brought to her passion journey, the three Ps that are key to living your passion, and why 85% of the world's full-time workers are disengaged in their careers and her secrets to improving that engagement. All that and so much more. An incredible interview today you absolutely don't wanna miss. Now, let's become passion struck.
I'm so excited today to have Amanda Slavin on the Passion Struck Podcast. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Well, I always like to start out the episodes by having the listener understand your background. And I happened to catch a TED Talk that you did on passion. I think you called it the three Ps. And I would encourage, and I'll put it in the show notes for any of the listeners who who want to catch that, that they'll have a link to the show. But what struck me is I have a 17-year-old daughter. And when she was 16, and you mentioned being a 16-year-old and it being a turning point for you in that episode as well, or in that TED Talk. But for her, she had COVID going on all around her. And I know for many of her friends and her, it changed everything because it changed their social interactions. It changed what activities she was going to do for her. She happened to be in two bands and they they were no longer able to do that. She couldn't do sports. Um, And so I saw a girl completely change in front of my eyes because this reality suddenly changed for her. And Mm -hmm. I think it did for you too, when you were 16. And so I thought that might be a good backdrop for the listeners to the beginning of your story. Yeah. I think what was probably different for 16 year olds in this situation is that it was simultaneously while they were all going through it together, it was also a very isolating experience. So they didn't feel like they were going through it together. In my case, it was kind of a very individual experience versus this time in history where, you know, everyone is going to have a story that, that they will be able to say this, this was a catalyst for me. This transformed my life in some way, whether at the time it was bad or good, um, it changed my life. So when I was 16, while it might not have been everyone experiencing this very big moment of uncertainty together, I did have a lot of uncertainty because I grew up in a very small town and just by the nature of life and work and things that were going on with my with my parents, we, we were kind of forced to move, if you will. And I was very much a a big fish in a small, small pond. And I knew everyone and I was kind of a walking yearbook. And this was before Facebook and this was before social media. I knew everything about everyone. I was the ultimate connector. It was 6,000 people in the town in a very small, uh, very small high school. You know, it was 150 people in my class. I, I knew every single person in every single grade. And I truly knew like who was dating who, what their favorite sport was, what their favorite food is, what their favorite color was. Like I, my mom said I was Facebook before Facebook. And then when, you know, a, huge part of my identity was that I was a social butterfly and that I did know everyone. And also by nature, I think that I thought that success by being such a people person was popularity. That was something that was unbelievably important to me at the time because it was something that, again, I was so good at people. And so that meant if I was good at people that I had to be popular. And when I ended up moving, I I ended up moving three times from the time I was 16 as a sophomore until I was a senior in high school, it really shifted my identity and my perception of myself and what was important to me because I ended up, you know, in a very different situation with 35,000 people in a town and no one knowing me from hole in the wall. And uh, it was a, it was a town that was very much focused on, you know, kind of, I mean, they were very much experimental. They were doing, they were definitely doing like drugs and they were doing, they were drinking at younger ages. It was a different type of experience that I was used to. And I became very sad in that town and in that, in that life, because I felt like I didn't fit in. No one knew me. I didn't know myself. And I, I really changed as a part of that. And it was, it was only three months of my life in that second town, but it was even more pivotal than I think the third town, because I changed myself in the process. And I also kind of lost myself a little bit. It was just, it shook me because for 16 years of my life, here I was in one way, in one sense of self of like, I know everyone, I'm popular, everyone loves me, I'm deeply connected, you know, and now it was, I don't know anyone, I have no grounding under me and I have to kind of start completely over. So, and again, this was, there was no social media. So it wasn't like, moving. You could keep in touch with your old friends and you have this identity that follows you and everyone kind of knows you. It was like, here you go, start from scratch. You're a nobody now. And then what ended up happening was I changed myself completely, changed what I wore, changed what I read, changed what I listened to, changed everything about me to fit in. And I still didn't really fit in. And then I moved again because of my, of my dad's work. And he was trying to figure out kind of who he might, now that I'm a parent, I'm a new parent. 
I see my parents were kind of just doing the best they could in, in trying to figure out what was best for them and for our family. And I was a 16 year old that was like, this is so unfair. How dare you? This is all about me and about what's best for me. And I want to stay with my friends. And, you know, in that third town, what ended up happening was I, I wore Birkenstocks. Now Birkenstocks are cool, but back then Birkenstocks were like more of like a hippie style. That was kind of the second town's vibe. And so I wore Birkenstocks to this next school. And when I arrived, people started making fun of me. And my mom told me, I wrote this letter to myself that said, you know, if it doesn't actually matter what anyone else thinks about me, it matters what I think about myself. And I'm no longer going to change for anyone else. And I kept wearing those Birkenstocks, which are now cool. So I guess I was a trendsetter in a lot of ways. Uh, But I totally shifted what was important to me in that school. You know, I really started to prioritize schoolwork. I started to build relationships with my teachers in a way that I really hadn't before because I was so focused on building relationships with my peers. And I I graduated with a 4.0 and I, I ended up one of the teachers in that school really went out to bat for me and fought for me to win this award as like, you know, a scholastic award at the end of the year, even though I hadn't been there all four years because of how much I applied myself to learn about not just, again, who liked what and who liked who, but about the subjects that were important to, you know, in terms of, in terms of education. And so that shifted my entire life. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily, I think that it's been a lesson I've had to continually learn because, you know, since then I've probably moved myself I'm not exaggerating, maybe like before COVID, 12 times, post COVID, maybe 25 times. And I've had to really stay grounded within my own self. And I think post COVID, I learned, which we can go into at a, at a later conversation, but I again learned that home is within you. And you really have to figure out how to anchor yourself within yourself or you will fly away. So, yes. Well, interesting you brought up uh, Birkenstocks because I happen to see an article recently that said that this is the, uh, the summer of, uh, what are those things called? Um, I just had oh, it Crocs. And I lost Crocs. Crocs. Yes. yes. The summer of Crocs. And I'm like, Oh my God, how things <laughs> come around. My girlfriend's been telling me it's like the summer of fifties bathing suits too. So it's interesting <laughs> and bell bottoms. It's interesting how hmm. things come around again and again. But speaking of that and going back in, in time, you brought up something that's interesting. And, and that is, you know, as we're growing up and we're kids, you know, I, I hate to say it, but most of us are very selfish yeah. um, in, in our own head. And, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting how you brought up what your father was going through now that you're looking at it through an adult lens. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't see necessarily the struggles or anything else mm-hmm. that your parents are going through. Because you kind of put this aura around them as if they're perfect, they're all-knowing, they're strong-willed. And, you know, we as parents try to shield our kids from that as well. But I, I thought it was a good thing to, to maybe just touch on for a second because many of the, the listeners and watchers are actually Gen Zers who are, mm. who are kind of coming, coming on. And I think mm-hmm. it's important for them to kind of understand that distinction as they're interacting with their parents because it might give them a different commonality in how they could approach or talk mm-hmm. to their parents if they're having issues, Yeah, you know, whether it's professionally yeah. or something else. Yeah. I once went to a life coach that, well, first of all, Gen Zers were my students. So they were my first grade students and my middle school students who are now in their twenties. Gen Z, my son is like an alpha. I don't even know what my son generation is. I mean, he's only 17 months, but Gen Zers are like getting to the point where they're going into the workforce and they're adults at this point. Like they're no longer children. They're no longer babies, right? They're, they're entering into this young adulthood and they have already changed so much about what we have thought was, was the standard and then was normal. You know, they, they really have broken so many barriers that I think have limited us in terms of connection. But what I would say about, you know, I just had to kind of frame that in that I don't necessarily like to, you know, stereotype like millennials, Gen Zers, whatever, but I will say just watching these kids grow up has been such an unbelievable honor to see the way that they think about everything differently. So they might have even different perspectives of relationships with parents, but for me as an older (laughs) millennial and elder millennial, I think, you know, I did a lot of work on myself early on. And I've done everything, you know, I've done 
traditional therapy. I've done healers and acupuncturists and astrologers and tarot card. I mean, I've done it. All. I've done a lot of, of work on myself. And one of the things I did was I had a, a life coach and her actual focus was on, it was, I think it was like how to stop being single. Like that was her role. And I was very much into trying to figure myself out for a relationship, which is always kind of, I think the first reason why we get involved in working on ourselves. And then we end up realizing that that's the problem to begin with is that we should probably be putting ourselves first and not the other person. Anyway. Um, so what I learned, she gave me some, I was, I just brought this up to my husband yesterday. She gave me such interesting advice, which is that when you are a child, you only see your parents as your parents and the stories that you know of them before they were your parents are the stories that they choose to tell you. And so you have a very specific understanding of them based on a, a filtered perspective that they give to you. But in reality, they were full people before you came into the world and before right. they became your parents. And it's something that I didn't fully grasp until I became a parent because I'm, I became a parent in my early thirties and I was a full person before this baby came into the world. But now he sees me in a very specific way, which is as his mom. And when I'm around, I'm not, you know, Amanda, an author or Amanda, a business owner, Amanda, investor, advisor. I am his mom. And so I think what is really important, I think it's, I think it's a two-way street. I think that we need to understand that children are, let me take one step, kind of what I just said about my, my students being Gen Zers. I feel that children know so much more than adults because they are not programmed. As we're adults, we have all these blockers up, again, for connection. And we have all these preconceived notions and we all have all these fears and all these things that have kind of come up. As children, we don't have that yet. We're innocent and open and we want to connect. It's, it's how we are programmed as human beings. And so I think that our, our children know a lot more than we give them credit for. And I think it's important as parents that while we don't necessarily share all of the things that we're experiencing because they might not understand, we give them credit and we tell them, hey, you might be feeling this and I want to hear what you're experiencing and what you're going through. And as children, I think it's important that we recognize that our parents are only human beings and they're doing the best that they can at any given point of time, but their best in that moment might not be what you would do and what you think is best. They're just doing all that they can as a human that has lived a full life that has made mistakes. And, you know, I think that it's having grace, compassion on both sides, you know, not, not being too hard on your children and not being too hard on your parents. Yeah. So I can tell you definitely uh, as a parent of two kids, it, uh, when I had the kids, it certainly changed almost everything about how I viewed not only the world, but myself and, uh, and approached it because you kind of have to, because now you've got someone completely dependent on you, but it also put things in priorities. Um, in, in, in many ways for me, because you're right, before you, you have the kids, you, you can be selfish with your time because it's all about that period of your life um, leading up to it. But after it, um, it, it certainly puts a lot of other pressures and other things. Um, so as, as you now are 17 months um, removed from that, um, how, how has it changed things for you? And have you had to make shifts um, and how you're pursuing your passion now? Yeah, I think so. I I was diagnosed with type one diabetes four years ago, and that changed my life because that's normally the diabetes you get as a child, and and I was it diagnosed is. as an adult. Yeah, so that was a very weird, shocking experience for me. And and you know, speaking of kind of these moments that are catalysts in our lives, that was definitely one of them. I think that when I got pregnant. I've always kind of been this boundless person that's constantly like, even in those experiences of, again, of moving and traveling, I'm always like, okay, how can I grow? What's the next step? How can I move forward? And um, my mom has always said, again, I, I'm boundless. And so I have just like in the drop of a hat, like gotten on a plane, traveled a hundred thousand miles a year, like said yes to, that's how I even started my businesses. I've just said yes. And I've, I've taken risks and I don't see them as risks. I'm like, what's next? What's next? What's next? When I got pregnant, it still didn't fully slow me down. I think that I was still in this pace of like, okay, I got this. I wrote my book when I was pregnant. I recorded my book when I was eight months pregnant. I kept going, but because I'm type one diabetic, I had to be induced. That's something that you, when you just, because to, for the safety of you and the baby, just to make sure that you're being induced before you're, you give birth naturally um, at 40 weeks. 
So for young kids, they're like, what, what is 38 weeks, 48 weeks, about like nine and a half months. So I, I knew this impending date of like, when you're pregnant, you're like, I don't know when the baby's coming. It could be tomorrow. It could be three weeks from now. I guess I'll plan, but you know, it's like, who knows when my life's going to change as opposed to when you are induced, you have a date that you're like, this is the day that I am going to have a baby, whether it's 24 hours or, you know, around that date. And so I had this. I had this feeling of like, my life is going to change. My life is going to change like at this date. And a friend of mine sent me an article because I, I didn't have anything like postpartum depression where, you know, people, women give birth and then hormonally, they really deal with a lot of different experiences and feelings that they didn't even realize that they were going to. But for me, it wasn't about postpartum. It was this, again, this identity feeling of like grieving a part of me. And my friend sent me this article while I was experiencing this and it was this article about how when you have children, you can never be carefree again. And I thought that was the best way of framing it because it's so incredible. There's so many unbelievable, amazing things that come with being a parent, of course. And there are things that we end up grieving, that we end up losing. And it's hard to put a feeling on that, a word on that. And we also don't even want to talk about that because we love our kids so much. We're like, no, it's amazing. It's great. It's incredible. Of course, I want to be a parent forever. But that feeling of not ever being carefree again really, for me, nailed that identity shift. And I think in terms of my passions, I love to travel more than most than really anything. I, I just, again, and I love to travel like quickly, sporadically. I travel by myself. I've been with my husband for eight years and I've gone to Tokyo and Australia and Scotland and I, all by myself. And I just go and eat and explore while I've been with him. I'm like, see you later. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go to Tokyo for 10 days. That definitely changed when having a baby. And I'd like to kind of, without going too far into multiple stories of how my passions changed, you know, one was that again, that sporadic carefree lifestyle. I still traveled, but things shifted and changed in the way that I've integrated travel and exploration into my life. And then the other is work. I am unbelievably passionate about my work. I could work 12 hours a day if I wanted to. I had to change everything and anything around the way that I perceived work, the way that I showed up to work, um, and how I use my energy and time, which I which is the greatest resources that we have, even more than money. So those two things really shifted for me. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development coaching and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now and let's get igniting. As I was going back to your TEDx talk, as I was uh, watching it, you started out by giving a couple statistics, one on both of them on millennials and what they were doing with their time. But I recently came across the 2019 Gallup poll that shocked the heck out of me. It um, basically... They went out and used a sample size of somehow capturing the billion full-time workers across the planet. Mm. And what they found was pretty startling. It, it found that um, out of that 1 billion workers, only 15% of them felt that engaged. they were engaged, Yeah. which if you said it a different way, it's 85% of them hate their jobs. Yes. What's your theory on why that's happening? Because mm. I you know, you and I are a decade in part in age, and I've got my feeling on it, which I'll get into, but I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I use that study in my book, and I pretty much quote that study like every single day. So I love that you brought that up. I don't, I didn't even actually remember. I don't know if I, that's so random and awesome, because I don't even think I mentioned that in the talk. But so I went to school to be a teacher. I have a master's in curriculum and instruction, and I wrote my thesis on engagement. So I created a framework of engagement to measure engagement and what it looked like in the classroom for those Gen Zers, if you will. And I then 
applied that into hospitality and marketing and, and in my company across across lots and lots and lots of different companies. And so I've studied engagement throughout my entire career. It's it's pretty much the through line. There's there's not much else that is a commonality between education, hospitality, restaurants, marketing, branding, experiential, except for engagement for me. So it's amazing that again <laughs> you brought that up. I really don't even think that, that was a, that was set up. I think there's a lot of reasons for why we're disengaged. So I think one part of the problem is that we have too simple of a definition of disengagement and there are seven levels of engagement. So the seventh level, this is what my framework is called. It's called the seventh level of engagement. The seventh level is defined as literate thinking. It's when your personal values and beliefs align with a message. And then the first level of engagement of these seven levels is actually disengagement. So people don't know that. They think the disengagement is the opposite of engagement. It's not. It's level one. And for me, the first reason why I think that everyone is disengaged at work is because we don't even know what engaged looks like. So I'm without going into every single level and overwhelming everyone just at first, I do want to just bring up one other, actually, I'm going to bring up two other levels. The third level of engagement is called frustrated engagement. We want to engage with something, but we're distracted. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the fourth level of engagement is structure-dependent engagement. It's called instruction-based engagement. When you ask someone to do it, something, and they do it. And so Talking through all these levels, you know, I think that there's there's something to say around frustrated engagement. We want to engage, but we're distracted. We have so many distractions that are keeping us from being able to be really engaged at work. And I think that we've seen that during COVID. And you know, whether that is the tools that like maybe Slack messages are are coming up, and we don't necessarily know how to actually use Slack or use Google Docs or use you know or when we're going to be using Asana or, or Trello or all of the tools that are disposable that are distracting us they're limiting us they're they're we're confused on when and how and what to use fine those are kind of simplistic reasons why we might be disengaged but that's not really the reason the real reason is that we have so much going on in our lives and we're not allowed to bring our full selves into work now i think things shifted during covid but all of the distractions that kept us whether it was you know sick family members or we were sick ourselves, or someone lost a job, or we were terrified of losing our jobs. We need to create spaces where we feel comfortable communicating those things that are getting in the way of us bringing our full selves to work and feel safe and feel seen and feel heard. And we also need workspaces and workplaces that actually create experiences that allow for us to align our values and beliefs that stand for something more than just selling products. So that was a very, very big answer, but I can talk about this for like three hours, if if you really wanted to. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get more into it. So why don't we why don't we tackle a few of these things? So I have a book manuscript, and as you know, the publishing process is a bitch. Um, yes. <laughs> so in that, I did a lot of research as well. I didn't uh, find that 2019 study until just recently, but I was looking at. Um, Studies by Brookings Institute, Harvard Business Review, Forrester, Gartner, Bill and Melinda Gates organization. I looked at uh, things coming out of the Fourth Industrial Revolution Task Force, mm-hmm. and it, it basically was showing a very bleak past two decades. Um, whereas if you really look at it across all Western civilization, business vitality and entrepreneurship are dropping drastically, and they're mm-hmm. now just starting to plateau. And as I started getting more and more into it, um, common thing I would hear is it's student debt. Mm. And although, you know, I think student debt is definitely a, a culprit. And luckily for, for me, I didn't have any because I, I went to the Naval Academy. But, you know, I feel for those who, who do because the costs are so expensive. But as I started getting further into it, I came up with that I feel that we are facing three contagions. And it's the mm. contagions of the human mind spirit and ego said otherwise mm-hmm. comfort apathy and showmanship mm-hmm. and i think those three things are a huge plague and it's actually the reason i started this whole brand but yes. one of the things you brought up is a concept that that i teach and it's a concept called stop living a pinball life and mm-hmm. as you were talking about all these distractions one day i was thinking about it through the lens of i love playing pinball but mm. the designers of the game make it so that you are completely distracted from actually playing the game. And it really mm. takes trial and error to, to, to learn how to play it. And you've really got to block a lot of those things that they throw at you 
because the keys are to understand the patterns that you have to hit and, and when you have to hit them. And I think life is very much like that. We get so distracted, I, I call it, by what we feel is urgent that yes. we often lose focus on what's important. And I think that happens in our personal lives and it definitely happens at work. And having been you know, the CIO of a Fortune 50 company, I can tell you that some of these product productivity tools that we implemented for me were anything but productive because yes. people were, I'll just give you a simple example. You know, I use a lot of Fiverr uh, folks to get my stuff done, mm-hmm. but if I would sit there all day, I mean, they're constantly bombarding me with checking on this, checking on that. And that's what Slack and some of these other tools were like. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I completely understand about your definitions. That's one form of disengagement. Another form of disengagement could be you simply don't like the culture of, of where you're yes. at, or it could be you don't like your individual boss, which I think yes. is a big one. If you're a person in that situation, and for any one of those reasons or more, you don't feel engaged, mm-hmm. what do you think your options are? I mean, obviously, one is quitting your job, but mm-hmm. like, how do you get at that engagement back? Yeah. So it's so interesting you use the word apathy because that's that's how I define the the opposite of engagement is apathy. And I say that if we don't if we don't start striving for more deep meaningful connection with the people we care about, which are the people we work with, the people that work for us, and our customer, then we will create apathetic customers. And when we really need to engage those customers around very important, extremely life saving movements like climate change or something that again is Right. you know, really important to engage young people around, we're going to have apathetic customers. So I just, I wanted to pinpoint that word apathy. I think we are creating apathetic employees, apathetic customers. I call employees internal customers, but yeah, it's extremely important that we think about engagement differently because engagement is the bedrock of of meaningful connection and, and connection matters. So just had to say that. I think for someone who's not engaged, there's a lot of reasons why you might not be engaged. And that's why I like these seven levels because those bottom three levels are reasons for why you might not be engaged. And you might not be engaged because you're the wrong at level one. It's You're talking to the wrong people and you're talking to them in the wrong places. So I like to kind of put the ownership on the on the leader. But I also, if you're, if you're disengaged, then it's the whole entire framework is all around looking at yourself and asking yourself, how can I be better? As opposed to blaming everyone else, as opposed to being like, well, my boss is just the worst communicator in the world and they don't care. Or my job is just horrible and the culture is terrible. I, I, the whole entire point of the framework is look at yourself and ask yourself what you can do differently. So at one, it's about, you know, if it is around the tools that people are using or the way that people are communicating to you or the boundaries that have not been designed. It is very uncomfortable as a young person to have to speak to your leadership team about what works best for you to be productive, but I had to do it. I had to do it as a 23-year-old only woman in a hospitality company. I was put in a situation and position where I was not being set up for success and I was not learning and I was making a lot of mistakes and I had to sit my boss down at the time after it was not very, you know, it wasn't the the most professional way that I did it because I didn't show up to work one day because I pretty much almost had a panic attack and a nervous breakdown because I was just overworking myself. I didn't know how to stand up for myself. It was during the recession. I was so scared of getting fired. And and finally, I didn't show up to work. And my director of operations called me and said, you can't do this because the phones were being unanswered. And they, were, they, didn't, they didn't know anything that, that all the work that I was doing. And so they were like, what is happening? Like everything is falling apart because Amanda's not here. And so they called me in and I sat you know, across from my boss who really didn't know me or trust me because it was only, I was only six months on the job, maybe even less. And I had to say to him, I am not being set up for success. I am only saying this to you because I care about your company and I am, you're, you're entrusting your company with me and you might think that I'm getting guidance, but I'm actually not. And so if you don't give me mentorship and help, then I'm going to run your company into the ground and I don't even mean to. It's because I'm not being supported properly. And so that shifted everything in that moment. They said, what did you, what do you need? I said, an employee, They're like, well, we can't give you that, but we'll give you an intern. And so, and I, they said, what else do you need? I said, I need, I need leadership. I need mentorship. I need to know 
how to do certain things. And they ended up shifting the person that was supposed to be managing me that that wasn't really. Um, and I ended up working directly with my boss to learn the lessons that I need to learn. So speak up for what you need to be productive in the lens in which it's going to better the organization. If it's the tools, if it's the way that you're being communicated to, that's one answer. There's so many other reasons why you might be disengaged. You might be confused by the messaging, which is level two. You might be distracted because things are going on in your life. You you might, again, not align with the company culture. There's a lot of different ways of what is the step that you need to take in order to communicate how you can be more engaged. But what I will say to those who are disengaged and not necessarily leaders, I'm going to kind of speak to someone who's maybe it's their first job or you know they're a manager and they, they're working for someone, they need to communicate to that person. Always use the business within your messaging. Because when when employees would come to me and say, I need a raise because this is how much money I need to make, it would be very disheartening to me because I would feel that they were only thinking about themselves. That's not a bad thing, by the way. They can they have to think of their needs. No one else is going to think of your needs if you don't and if you don't stand up for yourself. But what I would like, what I would have liked to see from, from them, and I had employees that did this in a really beautiful way, is this is what I need. And this is what the company needs. And this is how those two things align. And in order for me to show up as my best self for this organization, in order for me to be my most productive self, I need this, this, and this. And then it's the leader's job to say, well, this is how I can meet you. So identify what's going wrong and then come up with solutions that are right based on what's best for you and the organization. And if none of those things are possible, then you leave. (laughs) Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to passion struck. Well, I, I guess it's almost like how do you deal with toxic friends? It's kind of like how do you deal with a toxic work environment? You've got to you got to under, and understand what it is, and then either shift or shift them or that job out of your life. I'll, I'll tell you, seeing it from a from a different lens is I um, I had the opportunity to to go to Lowe's um, around two thousand five. Um, great great company, one of one of the favorite companies I've, I've ever worked for. Uh, because even though at that time it was a Fortune 50 company, it felt like it was a family company. Mm. Um, that that changed unfortunately during the years I was I was there, causing a lot of uh, the long term employees to start uh, heading to the door. But upon entering my job, and at this point I was in charge of all operations, um, I remember I started sitting down with employees, and I came into an organization that had the lowest employee engagement scores out of 350,000 employees in the company. My group had the lowest scores. And I would start talking to some of these folks, especially ones in the call centers or, mm. you know, who were supporting, who were running the operation control center, et cetera. And it, it was shocking to me because they're like, you're the first leader in my entire time here at Lowe's that ever asked me about my thoughts or what I thought we mm. could do to make it better. Yeah. And to me, it it uh, I call it um, the line of sight framework, and I've used mm-hmm. it in almost every job I've gotten. But if you're a person in the call center, especially mm-hmm. in a retailer, a customer of a retailer has three interaction points, the store, 
e-commerce mm-hmm. site or a person on the phone. Mm-hmm. And if that person on the phone isn't engaged when they're talking to a customer, forget about it. You're fighting a losing battle from the beginning. And so what I started to do is I created a line of sight so that none of them understood at all the company strategy. But mm-hmm. I had to distill it in a way that they understood that their job had a line of sight directly to impacting the KPIs mm. and the bottom line, as well as you know the valuation of the company because of the mm-hmm. job that they were doing. And once you do that, you know, as a lesson to someone who might be listening, you completely change that person from being there to collect a paycheck to being passion struck in what they're doing because all of a sudden it brings in new meaning. And then mm-hmm. if you empower them to actually have a voice and to not be afraid to give you feedback and what's working, what's not, mm-hmm. um, it completely changes the whole dynamics. And in that case, our group went from the worst in the company within 18 months to the third best performing group mm-hmm. in engagement in the entire organization. I think it's it's a lesson that so many leaders out there need to learn. And many of them yes. are not are not in a leadership position. They might be that person who's in the call center, but you don't want to learn by example. You want to learn by how you would want to, to be led. So it's a different question, right, on what can leaders do? And I have a lot for that, for those individuals versus those who might be at the helm of leadership who are disengaged. But what you just said are the levels. So they were confused by the messaging. They were at level two, a much much lower level than where you wanted them to be. Level six is critical engagement. It's when you inspire someone to set goals to make a difference. That's what you wanted to, for them to do. And in order to get there, you need to make sure they were not confused by the messaging. What was Where was the company going and what was their role in it? You need to limit distractions for them. So give them very clear understanding of what their roles were and how they can actually grow within those roles. You need to do structure-dependent engagement, instruction-based. This is how you actually reach those KPIs. You do this, you do this, you do this. You needed to have self-regulated interest, pique their interest, get them excited. What was in it for them? What were incentives? I'm sure there were incentives baked into it in some process if they did reach those KPIs. And then you needed to give them, but you had to build up to this, a space where they felt safe, seen, heard in order to have a voice. But you couldn't just, a lot of leaders, my business partner was Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, and he he recently passed away. And, and I was so lucky to be able to learn from him in so many ways. He was amazing. I I got to interview him when I was at Bold Business and I I recognized him for a Bold Leadership Award. And and he was just an amazing interview and I could tell an amazing human being. Yeah. I was I was just talking about him a few days ago about phone calls. And I was, I think again to was, was to my husband. And I was saying that most people, as it pertains to you know customer service, want people to get off the phone. You know, the measure of success is how short the phone call is. But Tony measures success based on, I think they, I think Zappos had a record for the longest customer service call like in history. And everyone who worked at Zappos had to go through their their CLT program, you know, their their customer service training program. And that is people I think so often see this opportunity to have people feel seen, heard, and and for them to share their voice. But unless there is a culture that isn't toxic, that people feel like they can fit into, first of all, they have to understand what the culture is. Then they have to know how they align with that culture. Then there needs to be small steps to take to earn their trust. You can't just be like, you're disengaged and now you're engaged. That's why these levels are so unique because it was a learning framework. It was a framework that I, I used to understand what it meant to learn and what it meant for a child to trust the teacher enough to feel like they could learn. Learning is a is a much different mechanism and connection point than it is to, again, just kind of show up to work. And so what you're saying as a leader, it was so important that you also validated these individuals. You went to them and said, your job is important. Your work matters. You matter. And that's the first step as leaders to being able to even have a relationship with your internal customer to then also allow for them to be the ambassadors of the brand. I interviewed Tony as one of his last formal interviews and he was really obsessed. This is like, again, a whole other podcast, but he was obsessed with self-organization rather than a hierarchy. He was obsessed with creating a workplace that was more like nature, like a rainforest. You know, he always would say like a rainforest has no CEO. I, I like to think of like ants or bees where everyone kind of knew their role. And Tony was a futurist in every sense of the word. And a lot of the things that I think he saw won't come to fruition for another 10 years, but they always came true with Tony. And 
there was a story. He sent me an article. He didn't even remember sending it to me, but he sent me an article that I brought up in the interview and I, I watched it recently. And there was a janitor at Cheetos came up with the idea for Flaming Hot Cheetos. And I just, I brought that up because I I brought it up in the interview with him. First of all, I love spicy food. So did, so did he, but it was this idea that everyone matters and everyone has, has value to give. You just need to create a space, a place, you know, a, he would call it a greenhouse where the temperature as a CEO, your job is to set the, or a leader, your job is to set the temperature just right and set the conditions just right for people to flourish and to grow. And so I just think we could learn. There's not really many people in the world like Tony, that thought like Tony. I think a lot of CEOs want to think like Tony, but they're so focused on the head part that they're not really connected to the heart. So I think we could all be a little bit more like Tony and the world would be better off. Yeah, I was I was lucky to work with a, a leader similar to him at at Lowe's. And while I was there, I went to the senior, I went to the CEO and senior leadership to launch an initiative we called the Integrated Workforce Experience. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of words, but basically what was happening <laughs> at, at this point, I had switched jobs. I was now in charge of all software development. But I started seeing that that the engagement between the stores and the leadership had a huge gap much as they possibly could, those, especially store operations people were on a plane every single week visiting stores, but you can't visit all of them. And oftentimes when you go to the stores, you're shielded because that store manager is doing most of the talking with that regional vice president, whoever it may be. And so this, the head of stores, this guy, Mike Brown came to me and said, is there a way that I can talk directly to from the highest level in a store to the lowest? And so it was one I think of the first applications of something like Zoom, and this was probably in 2007, 2008, so that technology really didn't exist then, but we created, you know, we used a WebSphere platform and he started mm-hmm. getting on these daily webcam calls and people thought he was crazy, but the level of engagement completely changed because he started hearing from the bottom up, like what was happening and then it changed the complete way that that he leads. But I think, you know, for many, it's, it's difficult to take that leap because, you know, you are putting yourself in harm's way because you are going to catch some bad boys, but you're going to catch a lot of uh, criticism along the way. Yeah, I mean... I'm on the board of a company called Speakfully, and and they're a tool that allows for listening to your internal customer on not only their grievances, but what they're experiencing in the workplace to improve that work, the workplace conditions. I think that there's two, well, there's probably three things I want to bring up. Tony, in that same interview, which is kind of coming up for me in this conversation, talked about how he would always um, ask the drivers who drove people from the airport for the interview and drove people to Zappos, their perspectives and opinions on people. And I just thought that was amazing to see, you know, it's, and I just had a conversation with someone at a coffee shop a few days ago about this. And, you know, when I was in the restaurant industry and hospitality, while there were a lot of celebrities and a lot of wealthy people that I dealt with, the people that helped me throughout my entire career move furniture and, you know, really just like were there for me were the bus boys. Like those people in every one of my properties, I would not have been able to do my job without them. So while I was wearing high heels, moving tables, you know, greeting the founder of Marquee Jets right before then, I was moving those tables with with the busboys. You know, I always would say like busboys and billionaires, everyone's the same. I think that it's extremely important that we treat everyone with respect. And, you know, I think it's it's twofold what happened with that leader. The leader learned a lot from those individuals. And so that person started to lead differently. But by talking to all of those individuals, they felt safe and also responding to, to some of their needs, right? You can't just be like, okay, well, nice to see you and then do nothing. But they felt hurt. They felt seen. They felt like they mattered. And so it was a two-way street. They they both shifted in that process. And no matter what, I mean, you could continue to, to ignore your internal customers, you know, feelings and experiences. And, and you'll just have a disengaged workplace that will probably either end up in the news or, you know, something will happen that will bubble up and your company will not last anymore. I think maybe 30, 40 years ago, you could have gotten away with not walking the walk and just talking the talk, but not anymore. And we've seen that at this point, your internal customer has a very big voice on social media, on Glassdoor, on LinkedIn, and you need to treat your internal customer with just as much respect as you do, if more respect than you do with than your external customer, because they are the first voice. 
uh, for your brand. Well, you're completely right. I also um, thought in your, your TED Talk, you made a very good point and you just brought part of it up that billionaires and everyday people, there's very little separating them. And I think that- uh, Except for dollars. <laughs> except for dollars. But well, and that's been part of the, the thing about that I've done with Passion Struck is, is analyzed a lot of them. And it's, they typically, everyone I've looked at uses actions and mindsets that have gotten them from a regular person to, to this billionaire. But I think your point about it's difficult to listen to Richard Branson talk about passion as compared to, you know, a couple months ago, I interviewed a lady who was working six different jobs, including being an Uber driver. And she was, cars were getting repoed. She was losing houses. She was trying to support her kids. And finally, she made the decision that I need to stop making other people's dreams come true and start making my dreams come true. Wow. And when she had that mindset shift in herself, she realized that what made her different was her passion for cooking. And that's what always lit her up. And so 18 months from that point, she was making multiple six figures because she made that shift. And a lot of that comes down to engagement, but it's self-engagement. So yes. I thought, I thought it, might be, you know, we've talked a little bit about company engagement. Can you kind of put your framework for, you know, maybe you're a person and I call it these portfolio careers where you're just, you're kind of doing the same job. You're not feeling great about it. You want to take the sleep, but you don't necessarily feel like you have the courage or you feel social pressure or financial pressure. How do you change that narrative? How do you get self-engaged to make that change? We have a called catalyststatement.com. It's like a, you can create your own seventh level statement. You know, what is that personal values and belief that is your North star that can catalyze you and others into action? And I think the reason why I started my company and called it Catalyst is I just, I felt the urge to never, I never wanted anyone to be a, a passive consumer in their own life, like a passenger of their own life. I wanted them to be an active participant in the world. It, it would sadden me when I would see someone who was just, uninspired and apathetic in their own existence. That's devastating to me. You know, so I I just wanted everyone to feel that they deserved the ability to be inspired in some aspect of their life. So in that talk, which I probably haven't watched in like six, I don't even know what I maybe six years ago, I really talked about this time in my life when I was at that hospitality company. And and you know, I, I had gone from education to hospitality and I had felt that there was this part of me that wasn't really alive anymore and that I needed to kind of bring back into my life in some way, but I, I couldn't leave that hospitality job. And so I figured out ways, and not everyone could do this, but I figured out ways to, to bring that side of me into my work. And in that case, it was you know hosting nonprofit experiences, educating people that might not know about what was going on in the world, like very wealthy bankers that weren't really focused on you know giving back. And right. I hosted different nonprofit events every single week and, and introduced them to different charities and, and changed their perspective and, and then also helped the charities. And, and, you know, that was like, it helped the restaurants because the restaurants were were dead on Tuesdays and, and it was just kind of an easy way to fill the restaurant. It helped the nonprofits because they got a free space. They got to raise money. They It helped the bankers because they felt good about themselves and it actually changed their perception of reality. And everyone left happy. And, and I left happy because I felt like I was doing something that brought that educator, that that impact back in my life while I was working. And that was all free. It benefited my company. Um, it benefited me and it benefited the world in some way, but not everyone can do that in their traditional job. I think that it's really important that we take small steps and we don't think it's just, again, that I'm going to now change my entire life. I think it's starting with yourself and identifying what do you value? What do you believe? What are those re those things that make you you, that make you special, that you know we so often don't recognize our own gifts because they come so naturally to us? So identifying that is the first step. From there, it's taking tiny steps towards testing out what that looks like in your day-to-day -day life, whether that is volunteering or whether that is looking for something that you can do with your quote-unquote spare time, whether that's even like, I've said it in this talk, I think around like whether it is writing a blog or doing something for your neighbor or what is it that you can start to flex that muscle, start to build that muscle and then take tiny risks along the way to be able to see that path, like create breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs for yourself, but use that statement, use those values, use those beliefs as the path, the, G, the happiness indicator, the GPS, happiness GPS on what direction you're going. But it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be tiny steps towards 
what makes you happy and, and feeling a sense of purpose. Yeah, it's it's interesting whether I have interviewed SEALs trying to get through BUDS or combat or mm-hmm. astronauts trying to get through a mission or people trying to get through cancer or this or that. It it all comes down to the same message. I call it the bee and turtle effect. You have to be like the turtle in the fact that you have this dream that you want to achieve, mm-hmm. but you can't rush to get there. So like a turtle, you need to do it gradually because if you, if you go too fast, you're going to skip so many of the steps. And that's where the yes. B part comes in because the B is very much focused on the here and now and the present and what they need to do in support of their colony. So it's yes. kind of how do you bring the best of those two worlds together so that you're balancing the long-term horizon with the daily mm-hmm. tasks that you need to get done. So it's amazing how much that comes up in so many different circumstances. Yeah, I also thought you brought up a, a good thing in that I, I think as people are thinking about what their secret gift is, you know, we all are our own storyteller and we're the main actor in it. <laughs> and so what makes, I think, our passion come alive is when you figure out what are those things that are distinguishing about you that make you unique and then who would want to be a customer of those. Mm-hmm. And then it's the shift, as I talked about earlier, of ego or showmanship, shifting from that to serving others instead of serving yourself. I see why you like the TEDx talk with the three Ps. So I totally (laughs) feel alignment there around, you know, this idea of passion and yes, bringing in money and profitability, but solving solving a specific world problem and and applying yourself to how you can better other people's lives. And and, you know, I, I really also I like that analogy because for me, I I left education for a lot of reasons, but I really wanted to transform the way we learn. And I have always wanted to do that. And it's been an underlying reason for a lot of the decisions that I've made throughout my life. But I also realized that I couldn't just go from being you know, a cog in the wheel to totally breaking the wheel. And that is what I'm always gearing up towards is transforming the way we learn. It's just taking time because I see those breadcrumbs um, and I see that goal, but it's it's going to take years and years and years to transform systems that we have been so dependent on. Uh, and we can't just break those systems because a lot of people depend on those, those systems. So I think what you said is a really interesting, interesting analogy. And, and especially because I already brought up the bees, but I am not a tur- I am like literally everything about me is move fast, move fast, move fast. I speak <laughs> fast. I, I, you know, I broke my foot because I was like running and I tripped and it's like, everything is like, I have to slow down. That's what I've always been told my whole life. So I do really relate to the fact that if we can think a bit more like that breadcrumb, like what's the next step? What's the next step? What's I'm learning that with my child as he's learning to walk, like versus we go from crawling to sprinting. We go from disengaged to engage. Like what are the steps we need to take step-by-step step, to just figure out what's going to get us closer to what we care about and, and what matters. Well, and sometimes in, in your career, you even think, you know, let's say you're an associate right now at a, big four consulting firm and you've got your eye on partner, you know, mm-hmm. if you hurry up through that progression too fast, it can actually be decremental in you learning through each phase as you're going from that to manager to senior manager to whatever it is. If you short circuit those too quick, you can lo- lose or not learn some of the most important skills. Well, on that note, and then I'm going to go into the last portion of uh, the interview. If a listener or a watcher of the video would like to get in contact with you. And I'll put these in the show notes. What are some of those best ways? LinkedIn is the best possible way. You could find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on my name, amandaslavin.com. There's a lot. We'll send you a lot of links. Catalyst statement. If you want to do your own statement, you could somehow get to me. Our Catalyst website, which we'll give you. But yeah, LinkedIn is the easiest because it's me. And then I can point you to all the resources that matter. Okay. Well, I'm going to take you through the fan favorite portion of the interview, which is the uh, lightning round. And I, I'll, I'll do it quick. So the first thing is now that you have a child, I have a, I have a son who just turned 23. If you were looking back at that 22, 23 year old version of yourself, what is the most important lesson you would tell yourself? Uh, you don't have to know everything. You don't know everything right now. And that's totally okay. And be humble and recognize that it's going to take you some time to 
learn all of the lessons that you think you know at that moment. How do you keep your act sharp, especially now that you know you have some different uh, elements in your life? Because I'm sure many listeners are in that same spot. No matter what, meditate once a day under all circumstances and try to do twice a day. That is extremely important to me. And I walk as like, if I have to take a phone calls, I make sure that I'm getting out of the house and actually walking for myself. And I'm reading just voraciously all of the time on reading articles, reading, I'm on LinkedIn, just like really consuming, 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 but also like actively participating in reading and sharing and commenting and, and getting to know different industries, not just the industry that I think I'm a part of. I think that's the most important thing is step outside your comfort zone and what you think you should be learning and learn all different things from all different types of people and all different voices. Uh, so diversify the way that you're consuming information, but take in lots and lots and lots of information as much as you can, and then give yourself time to rest and integrate that information. Okay. So be a, become a constant learner. Um, mm-hmm. Throughout your life, uh, what is one thing that you've eliminated from it that has made you more productive? I went to this acupuncturist when I was trying to get pregnant who talked to me about um, how people make you either expand or contract. And I actually ended up getting rid of some people in my life that I felt were making me contract. I didn't get rid of them. I just transitioned them from being kind of this close to me to maybe being a few circles in a different, uh, in a different relationship to me. So I, I made some really intentional decisions and hard decisions about the way that uh, people were in my life, uh, whether they made me expand or contract. Yeah. And I must like insects or something because I, I, I have a, a saying or a principle I teach called the mosquito principle. And it's that you've got to do a mosquito audit. And I call them the pain in the asses, the invisible suffocators and the blood suckers in your life. And they don't have to be people. They could be influences or activities. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Social media. I don't use, I actually don't use Facebook. I don't use Insta. Well, I mean, Facebook for work to an extent, but like I don't passively consume Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. I really use LinkedIn. So that's a huge thing that I've cut out of my life. I don't compare myself uh, to, to others highlight reels. That's very important to me. And, and I always ask this question. So you get to go on the mission to Mars and you, you're the first person who's going to land. And they tell you and the fellow astronauts that are hitting the planet that you're going to colonize it and that you can set uh, the initial laws. What would be a law that you would set for the planet? Mm, that's a great question. I would say that every single person on the planet has to be a teacher in some way. Uh, so they have to teach someone something that they that they don't necessarily know. And every single person on that planet has to have a process for respecting others' contributions. So however that looks, whether it's, you know, how can you be a learner and how can you be a teacher? Okay. Well, great. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a, it was an awesome interview and listeners and watchers are going to get so much from it. Thank you so, so much. I really, really enjoyed it. As I have thought about my own life and my time across my career, there were periods where I felt very engaged and other periods where I felt much less engagement than I probably should have. And I'm sure many of you who are watching or listening have felt the same way. Engagement plays such an important part in our life because as we engage in something, we are giving our all to it. Whereas our engagement lessens, so does our enthusiasm for the pursuit of it. So I thought today's discussion with Amanda was extremely important in that engagement can play such a big role for you on this passion journey that you want to take. To me, engagement is absolutely critical when you're on your execution path, that execution where you are trying to take those micro steps, those breadcrumbs that we talked about today, those daily intentions and priorities that you were putting in place. And it's easy to get disengaged. It's easy to get distracted by those things that are all around us, as we also talked about in today's podcast. That pinball life that I talked about in a previous episode on the Passion Start podcast. I hope today's message on engagement is one that you could resonate with and that you will find, if you're not engaged today, a path to engagement, whether it be in your career, your personal life, or on your passion journey. And if you love today's episode, I would really be thankful 
if you could subscribe to the Passion Start Podcast and send this episode out to other like-minded friends who are just like you, whether that be on email or social media. And as always, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 